0: Well, good morning. Um, So this week I was working on my sermon and had to finish it up on Saturday. I was here in the office finishing it up. And when I was done, I decided to just get online before I head home and uh, I saw all that was going on in Charlottesville. And I'm sure like you, it saddened me, it angered me, it frustrated me, and it just broke my heart. And I thought, well, what am I gonna do with this? Do I change my sermon that I've been preparing all week? Do I not say anything? And if I say anything, what do I say? And, and I don't have many words to say, I haven't written anything down, but as I've been thinking about it all night and this morning, there's just a few things I want to say. This morning we're going to continue in a series in Mark where Jesus talks about the kingdom. And we believe that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he came here but it's not in fullness yet. (laughs) And we see that blatantly when we see the racists and the hatred and the anger towards another race and thinking they're better than others. And we only can long for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. And we need to trust in the Lord and not in our government and not in ourselves and not in anything that we think we can do to make things go away. We must trust in the Lord and believe in him And then the last thing I just want to say is we are about to enter into reading God's word. And sadly, there are some on the alt-right that use God's word to defend their false positions. There's a danger in all of our hearts to try to make the word say what it doesn't say and try to use the word to prove ourselves to be right. And when we come to God's word, we need to humble ourselves and ask the spirit to break us of our pride and listen to what God has to say, not what we want it to say. So let me pray for us as we ask God to teach us today through his word. Father, we do thank you for your grace and the hope of the kingdom. And we thank you for your love and your peace and your mercy. And we don't often see it in this world, but we know that you love us and that you care for us and that you are restoring your earth so that one day there will be no more riots and death and anger and hatred and racism. Father, help us to hear your word now through this passage in Mark to challenge us in our hearts to what we hold on to rather than you to give us hope. In your holy name, amen. So I'm gonna read for us from our passage in Mark 10. I'd encourage you to follow along in a Bible or in your order of worship or just listen as I read. We're continuing in this series and Jesus once again encounters someone and deals with him and then talks to his disciples about what's going on. Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his father, his house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word and it is given to us for our good. Well about six years ago now my family and I took a vacation with some good friends of ours to a lake house and we uh, rented a pontoon boat and we had a tube in the back of the boat, and it was a blast. If you've ever done this, it's a lot of fun to go out on a lake and just go over the rafts, go over the waves, spin around, it's a lot of fun. So the first ride that we went on, my friend was driving the boat, I was in the back on this big tube, and then I had my, one of my daughters next to me, and then the daughter of my friend on the other side of me, and we took off, and we were hitting the waves perfectly, and flying over the waves, and spinning around and having a blast. But my friend's daughter started to get a little sick, and she said, we we need to stop this ride. And of course, they can't hear us in the boat, so I gave the universal sign for wrapping it up. I took my hand and I said, okay, wrap it up. (laughs) And for some reason, my friend decided to make the boat keep spinning around in circles. (laughs) So I emphatically gave him the wrap it up sign even more, and he kept having us spin around and around and around. My family and uh, my friend's family and I still laugh about this today. I totally misunderstood probably the proper way would have been to go like this to cut the boat off. I really thought, I really did think I knew how to communicate to my friend what I needed. (laughs) I thought I knew how to stop the spinning and I was wrong. I share this misunderstanding I have because I think it relates to this passage we're looking at today. We have a story this morning of a man who deeply misunderstood who he was talking to and what needed to happen in his life. We have a story today of a man who assumed something about himself and about Jesus that was wrong. We have a story today of a man who looked at goodness from human resources and accomplishment, who misunderstood what it took to be accepted, to be good, and to be worthy. And I believe what we see in this man, we often see in our hearts as well. You know, I wanted to stop the boat, and I misunderstood how to do this, and it caused some sickness. This man wanted assurance of eternal life, and he misunderstood how to get it, and it caused him to walk away very sad. So let's walk through this passage together and see what God wants to teach us about his kingdom. Our passage begins today and it looks really good. I mean, a man approaches Jesus, he runs to Jesus and shows him reverence, bows down before him and asks him the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This seems like a great question. This seems like a great way for Jesus to add another follower to his group. But Jesus knows the flaw in this man's thinking. Jesus, like he does with all of us, looks past the words and the action and looks at the heart. And he addresses this man exactly where his misunderstandings lie. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, Jesus said. Now Jesus is not denying that he is God here. He's not denying that he is good. Jesus knows quite well that he is God and he is good but he knows that this man does not believe this about Jesus. He thinks that Jesus is just a great teacher, a great leader, a great rabbi. Jesus knows that it's not proper for this man to just call Jesus a good teacher until he is ready to acknowledge that Jesus is God. The scriptures are clear that they present Jesus not just as a just and wise and noble teacher, though he was. But the scriptures unanimously proclaim that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is God. And this man does not see this about Jesus. But I think even more problematic than this is how the man views himself when it comes to goodness. This man has a false sense of security. He feels like he's worthy of God's kingdom. He feels like he has what it takes to be accepted by God because of his goodness. It's all about him. Notice the question that he asks of Jesus. What must I do to get into the kingdom of God? What must I do to be accepted? Now, God does call us to things, actually often hard things in following him. We're called to give God our lives. We're called to holiness and obedience. But we have to ask ourselves, do we think these things get us to God? Do we think we have what it takes for God to accept us? Do we think we're good enough to come to God and do what he commands all on our own? This man's idea of salvation assumes that you could find goodness in your own accomplishments. It's a false belief that we get trapped in time and time again. It's a false belief we have to fight against that we think we are better than we actually are. It's a false belief when we believe that we have the power and the ability in and of ourselves to please God because of all the things we do or don't do. We have to fight against this belief constantly. We have to preach the good news that we can't fix ourselves, but our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Our hope is in the fact that he provides what we need in his grace to live for him. Jesus needed this man to get to this point, and that's why he follows up this man's statement with a list of commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read Jesus' response to this man, it it seems a little out of line with what we know about Jesus up to this point in the story. I mean, over and over again, Jesus teaches that being moral and keeping the law is not the way of salvation. Over and over again, Jesus points to himself, as the only way for salvation. So why do we see in verse 19 Jesus listing some of the commandments and calling this man to obey them? Why is Jesus focusing on the law here and not just on the grace that he provides? Because Jesus knows this man doesn't yet believe he's a sinner. This man doesn't see his need He thinks salvation comes by keeping the law, and it looks like he's actually done a pretty good job at keeping the law. To this man, the message that Jesus is going to give in the next section we're going to look at, that he came to be a ransom for sinners, would make no sense to this man. You know, entrance into the kingdom of God is defined as a gift to those that know we need help, and this man did not feel helpless at all. So Jesus pushes him to the law. And this man was a pretty good law keeper, as I said. This man was a good person overall. Jesus does not accuse him of lying when he says he kept all the commandments. It doesn't say that Jesus sneered at his response that he's been obeying since his childhood. But because Jesus loves this man, he directly challenges him. One thing you lack Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus says to this man, get rid of what provides your security and your hope in this life. Jesus casts a spotlight on what this man values and lives for, and he confronts this man in love. And Jesus still does that today for you and me. This man was a moral, upright man who kept most of the commandments, but in his obedience to the commandments, he forgot the first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me, our God says. Jesus knew this man. He truly knew this man as he looked at him. When Mark says that Jesus looked at this man, this word look, it has this like searching look of Jesus. He saw deep within this man's heart. He saw what this man worshiped. And it was not God, but it was wealth and perhaps social status. The problem with this man is not his performance. The problem with this man is not his behavior. The problem with this man is the worship of his heart. And Jesus knows that this man's heart is ruled by something other than him. And let's be honest, are we any different? We've already confessed, hopefully, those places that we turn to instead of God for security, comfort, peace, and hope. You see, the call to follow Jesus is not just to follow him and believe that he is our salvation. This is true. But it's also to believe that there are not other things we can trust in as well to get salvation. This man had an authority or an idol in his life that gave him a higher authority than God his money. This man had to be confronted with materialism. Now, maybe this is not a problem you struggle with today, but we all have things that we place higher than God in our lives at times. I remember a few years ago, I was really struggling as a pastor. I was feeling inadequate, and I was feeling like a failure, and what I was doing that was very dangerous is I was comparing myself to many other pastors, ones that I knew and ones that I didn't know and I would beat myself up thinking I'm not doing enough. And so what did I do with my insecurity and my struggles? Well, I began to think, you know what? At least I'm a good dad. I might not be the best pastor, but at least my kids love me. I began to rest in the fact or believe that maybe this pastor is better than me, but I'm a better dad than him. Family is important. Being a good dad is something I think we should all aim for if we are fathers. But I took a good thing, family, and turned it into the thing that I wanted hope and comfort and security. What is this thing for you today? Maybe it's your job right now that is the most important thing to you, and it's what gives you your identity. Maybe it's your health or your appearance and how you look in front of others. Maybe it's your reputation, the fact that you need to be right no matter what and you will fight anyone to prove your point. Maybe it's your race that has become your identity and makes you think you are secure in that. We all have places we turn to, to look for hope and satisfaction and security. And we must allow God to show us those places that we look for worth and identity and salvation, and we must get rid of them to follow Jesus. Because what we hold on to other than Jesus will ultimately let us down. You know, I told all my kids that I was going to share briefly about my struggle. I figured if I'm going to use them in a sermon, I need to ask their permission. And so I asked them, is it okay if I bring up this point? And I might even say something like, I'm not a great pastor, but my kids like me and my son Joey immediately said why would you say that it's not true (laughs) if you know Joey you know that's perfect and I think he was kidding (laughs) but it made me think how often are the things that we actually hold to not true how often are the things we think are going to give us the hope we want are fleeting and false I think often and you know what God knows this and so what does he do What does he do with our fleeting, failing, holding on to things that we shouldn't? He looks at us and he loves us. He looks at our false hearts and our false hopes and he loves us. I love that the first time in the gospel where we see that Jesus loves a person, it's right here. Jesus sees this man's heart and he loves him. Jesus sees your heart and he loves you. He sees us hiding from him and hiding from others. He sees us failing again and again to live for him, and he still looks at us in love. And this is a love that will confront us and challenge us, and this is difficult. This is a love that will push us to see those things in our lives that we do need to set aside. Now, not every follower of Jesus needs to sell all they have and give to the poor. Jesus does not command this of everyone. But every follower of Jesus has to have open hands and open hearts to what God calls us to do. And this call is hard at times. And the reality is sometimes the call of God causes people to run away. This man left Jesus sad and broken. And this made Jesus turn to the disciples and talk to them about the situation. He looks at the disciples, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this must really shock the disciples. Back then, and even today, wealth was considered a mark of God's blessing in your life. Wealth was considered a sign of God's pleasure, not a thing that prevented you access to God. In fact, the common sense of that time is the richer you were, the more blessed by God you were, and that meant probably the more godly you were to be blessed. But Jesus turns this upside down and says, the richer you are, the harder it is to make spiritual progress. Now again, having money, being rich, which compared to the people back in Mark's day and compared to most of the world, most, if not all of us, would be considered rich. And being rich in and of itself is not wrong, but the danger lies in how riches and affluence tend to make us comfortable and self-sufficient and in control, or we think we are. Some of the greatest enemies to faith and obedience is self-reliance and pride. And often money is what leads people down a path that's dangerous. And whether you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money, money has power in all of our lives. To some, money leads to pride, and we think we're better than others. To some money leads to envy and jealousy as we look to others and think they have more than us and we don't like it. To many of us money leads to anxiety and to worry. Yeah you know, I found a good quote this week about greed and coveting um, what others have and this author said covetedness is like a virus that takes residence in the soul and begins to slowly work its destruction. The love of acquisition and the appetite for self-gratification will deaden the instinct for self-sacrifice. Again, I don't think we need to give up all our money and give to the poor, but I do think we need to fight against the materialistic culture we live in, and the love of acquisition, and and the appetite for self-gratification. And deep down, all of us know where our hearts are when it comes to our wealth and possessions. And Jesus, back in this story in Mark, and in our lives as well, will push us and confront us to see those areas that we need to let go. Jesus uses wealth and possession to push this man to think, and it causes them to walk away, causes him to walk away. Jesus uses wealth and possessions to push the disciples, and it causes them to ask a great question. Then who can be saved? They look at this guy who looks like he has it all together, walk away, and they don't know how they could even have hope. If the rich and the powerful can't enter the kingdom of God, what are they going to do? And Jesus answers them, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus clearly says it's not just the rich that have a problem. You can replace a rich person with anything. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than a faithful churchgoer to get into the kingdom of God. Or a moral person, or a generous person. All human effort to get into the kingdom is like a camel trying to get in the needle, the eye of the needle. It can't be done. With man it is impossible, but not with God. This is what we must believe, and this is what we must cling to. And Jesus calls us to follow him and he says to let go of all those other idols and things we hold on to and we can't do it on our own. But with man it is impossible. But with God it is possible. Thanks be to God that Jesus provides what we need to enter into his kingdom. And when we truly realize all that Jesus has done, when we realize that though he was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich, we then can turn to God and respond with open hearts and open hands. As the old hymn that I often quote says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And clinging to the cross means following Jesus wherever he leads us. And this is hard. We're called to sacrifice and give up the things we want or like at times. When Peter says that him and his disciples have left everything to follow Jesus, Jesus doesn't deny that statement. For those of you who are a follower of Jesus today, you are called to deny yourself. We are called to not live for ourselves and our desires and our wants. We are called to live for Jesus, and it is costly at times. It often hurts to be a disciple of Jesus. What we see here is Jesus turning things upside down. Power and prestige give way to humility and service. What our world and our hearts often value is being challenged by Jesus and his kingdom values. So following Jesus means sacrifice is more important than success. Following Jesus means service is more important than satisfaction. So how do we do this? How do we really do this practically? Well, hopefully you've heard me say it again and again in this sermon about the grace of God and the power of God to provide what we need. We must turn to Jesus and admit we can't do it and ask him for help. Jesus will give us what we need, I believe. But I also believe we must turn to each other to help one another follow Jesus. As I wrap this sermon up, I don't have time to dig deep into this. But at the end of this section, Jesus talks about what happens to those who give up and follow Jesus. And he talks about a promise of a hope for eternity that is the wonder hope we have we're longing for. But Jesus also talks about stuff we receive today following Jesus. Jesus talks about in verse 30 that those who have left their families, and their friends. Those who have left their former ways of life to follow Jesus will receive hundreds of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands in this age. Jesus is talking about us. Jesus is talking about the community that he brings together, his church, the family of God. Followers of Jesus, our family members, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is true whether we live like it is true or not. We are a community that are called to love each other and share with one another like the New Testament reading shared. And that's why we as a church value things like our small groups, because we know we need to be in each other's lives because following Jesus, we can't do it on our own. This is why we as a church uh, try to improve our hospitality and we do things like cookouts, and and dinners together and neighborhood cookouts. And we do these things not just to add another thing for you to put on your calendar, but to cultivate what it means that we are a family together. Following Jesus is not something you can do alone, but you share it with your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers. And I got to tell you, I'm so thankful for so many of you that are doing this very thing. I love how many of you open up your homes and your lives to the people in this community and to those outside this community. Keep it up. I love the simple ways that some of you on Sunday morning during the passing of the peace or the coffee hour look to see if there's anyone alone and you reach out to them. That is one of the most important things you can do as a church to help us build our hospitality. I love that so many of you know that we need to continue to grow as a family and and open ourselves up to each other better and you are willing to step up and serve and we continually need your help. Thank you. I hope many of you will join us in living as a family. It is hard, it is messy, it takes time and it is often one step forward, three steps back but it is an important thing for us to do as a community. So I would encourage you to pray that Jesus will let us see our brothers and sisters in this room and in the city around us and that we may love and serve others and join with one another to follow Jesus, the path he's called us to follow. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for all that you do and all that you are. And we thank you that we are following you on a path that for you ultimately led to death on a cross for our sins. Father, thank you that we do not need to do that very thing because you've already done it for us. May we rest in that hope that we have your forgiveness and grace. And may we in turn share that love and forgiveness and grace to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, and to the world around us. In your name, amen.